From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Meniere's disease is not necessarily life-threatening, but it can be extremely debilitating for people who suffer its symptoms. Here to talk about this disease, its diagnosis and treatments, is Dr. Charles Woods, an assistant professor of otolaryngology and communication sciences at Upstate. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, I also want to say you spe- this is ear, nose, and throat, um, but within that, you subspecialize. What is your um, subspecialization? Well, after my residency in uh, ear, nose, and throat, I went on for a year and a half uh, at Vanderbilt University to further uh, refine what I was going to specialize in. And so they call me an otologist, neuro-otologist, which is really somebody who focuses on ear disease from the brain on out. Now, and Meniere's falls within that. Yes, it does. Okay. So tell us what Meniere's disease is. Well, I guess first off, I, I always tell patients that I, I don't even like the name disease because it's, a, it's an ear that's not functioning correctly, an inner ear. And the inner ear is made up of both the hearing side of things, but also balance side of things. So semicircular canals are involved in the balance and the cochlea is involved in the hearing. And it's, it's an ear that's not functioning correctly, but it's not necessarily a disease. Okay. All right. Are there um, symptoms to be on the lookout for? How would someone know that they've got this? Well, there's four major symptoms that, uh, that Meniere's disease causes. And it, it, again, goes back to the fact that the inner ear is involved with both hearing and balance. So the hearing side of things, you're going to have a progressive uh, sort of stepwise uh, sensory neural hearing loss where the little hair cells inside the cochlea are being damaged. Uh, There's some feeling to the ear. So you oftentimes experience a feeling of, of the ear feeling full or plugged. And that can cause problems, especially for family practitioners, because when they when they get that symptom, they think the ear has fluid in it. Uh, and oftentimes that's not the case. So a feeling of fullness, you're progressively losing your hearing. It causes tinnitus or tinnitus. Uh, and that can be a whole variety of different sounds. Uh, everything from a high-pitched sound to uh, a seashell sound or a hiss. And then episodes of vertigo. And the vertigo is is oftentimes the most debilitating symptom. So if we can, if we can at least alleviate that symptom for people, uh, the, the disordered ear is much more bearable. The, is vertigo uh, dizziness? Vertigo is, uh, for a physician, dizziness is usually considered a little bit lighter symptom. Vertigo is much more debilitating because it's that sense that the world is spinning or that you feel like you're spinning. Uh, and true violent vertigo from Meniere's disease is you can't function with it. You can't really walk down the hallway when you're spinning like that. Whereas dizziness or lightheadedness, we, most people can still function with. It's, uh, it's a lighter symptom. I've heard, too, that um, it's unpredictable, so you can't plan for it. You don't really know what's going to happen. And that's oftentimes one of, the, one of the most debilitating things for patients is they, 
they almost become reclusive because they're so afraid that they're going to go out someplace, whether it's a restaurant or just out in public, and that they're all of a sudden going to get this attack uh, of vertigo. And usually the attack can last anywhere from 15 minutes to several hours. And you just have to stop and cope with it and get help for... What patients really like to do, if they're home, they usually, you know, crawl off to their room, uh, get in bed, and usually just sleep it off. But if you're not at home, obviously. If you're not at home, that's that's a problem. Now, you mentioned um, a feeling of fullness or plugged in the ear. Is Is there something obstructing... Or is it just a feeling, a sensation? Well, the one common etiology, and this comes from actually examining people's inner ears after they've died, is what we call interlymphatic hydrops. And so there's two major fluid spaces inside the inner ear. Again, the balance side of things and the hearing side of things. And those fluid spaces are actually connected to the fluid space, the spinal fluid space around the brain. And these are very specialized fluids that are involved with creating the electrical potentials that then go off to the brain and allow us to hear and have balance. So what the high drops is, is where there's an increased pressure within the endolymphatic space. And again, no one knows what causes that. And oftentimes when I'm explaining this to patients, I tell them it's, it's not all that dissimilar from glaucoma. Glaucoma uh, is an increased fluid pressure inside the eye. When that fluid pressure is increased, it can cause retinal damage. Same thing with the inner ear. There's an increased pressure within this fluid space in the inner ear, and that can cause progressive neural damage. Does it happen with age? doesn't really happen. I mean, you can have Meniere's disease when you're as young as, you know, in your teens. It's much more common usually in the your 30s, 40s, 50s. Huh, okay. So is it difficult to diagnose? Or if you have these symptoms, are you considered that you have Meniere's? Or? Well, it certainly can be initially. Uh, so someone starting off with Meniere's disease, they may not even really feel like they have any hearing loss because it's oftentimes involving just the lower frequencies of sound and the, the, the ear may sound a little bit distorted. They may have occasional tinnitus. It may last for an hour and then go away. Uh, the ear may feel a little bit plugged. And so they'll go to their family practitioner. And again, oftentimes it's misdiagnosed as you have some fluid in your middle ear causing these symptoms which is very common after a cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And so oftentimes early on when it's, especially when the hearing is fluctuating, they may have a day or two where it's bad and then it's better again. Uh, Are there things that are like this that have to be ruled out? If you've got, like if you've got vertigo um, and maybe you think it's Meniere's, are, are there things that have to be ruled out before you can? Well, vertigo is either inner ear or brain. And fortunately, most of the problems that cause vertigo are inner ear problems. Okay. And these, these attacks, when they occur, there are other things that can cause vertigo. And so what you're trying to do is listen to the patient and try to determine, are their attacks more likely to be from Meniere's disease? Or are they 
some of the other inner ear disorders that can cause vertigo. Uh, the most common is benign positional vertigo. And so, again, early on in the disease, it can be difficult to kind of nail this down. And I'll oftentimes tell my patients, you know, time is going to separate this out. So when they actually start actually having, um, showing signs of sensory neural hearing loss, now they're more consistently having tinnitus and the full-blown four symptoms. Now you can be very sure that they have Meniere's disease. So it may take some time. to. It may take some time. All right. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate otolaryngologist or ear, nose, and throat doctor, Dr. Charles Woods, about Meniere's disease. Um, so I'm assuming that primary care doctors would refer patients to an ENT specialist such as yourself if they have someone with these symptoms. Especially when the symptoms start to be progressive and, and more full-blown. Okay. So can you walk us through what's typically done when you see a new patient? Well... First is, is clarifying the diagnosis. Second would then be trying to control the disease medically. And at least 70 to 80% of patients are, uh, are controlled medically, and that's as far as where I need to go with them other than making the diagnosis. Does that mean medication when you say controlled medically? The two mainstay treatments uh, across the world right now are low-sodium diets because sodium controls fluid in our body and to some extent can, can help control Meniere's disease. And the other is usually a diuretic. And the diuretic also is an imperfect fix but does control the, the pressure within some of these fluid spaces within the inner ear. And so the combination of those two uh, will control most people. Huh. Okay. Okay. And that's, is that a lifetime following low sodium and diuretics or because the disease is intermittent, um, you, you're, you're not sure exactly how long and, and what period of time you need to treat people. Uh, but oftentimes it's at least intermittent treatment lifelong because the disease will last lifelong. So it may flare up? It's not going to go away. It's not. Uh, It's it's going to plague the patient intermittently through their life. And so they may have quiet periods uh, of several years where they don't need to be treated, but then they turn back up and need a little bit of help for a couple of years. Okay. Now, you said that um, low-sodium diet and diuretic help the majority of people with these symptoms. What about those that are not helped by that? So that's where I primarily become involved as a surgeon helping these people. Uh, there, there are actually quite a few uh, varied, more invasive treatments. And I'll start in the, uh, with, the, with the least invasive first. And those are where we actually inject various medications through the tympanic membrane. and the let, ear, Is that the eardrum? That's the eardrum. Okay. So inject these medications actually through the eardrum. And now those medications are in the middle ear space. And we usually try to keep them within the middle ear, uh, you know, with, for about a half hour for most of these medications. And there's two main ones. One would be steroids. Uh, dexamethasone, and the other would be an antibiotic. And this is confusing to patients because that antibiotic is actually toxic to the ear. 
and those are the aminoglycoside family, and the most common use is gentamicin. So gentamicin is used for many infections in the body, but it can actually be used for its toxic effects in the ear, huh. reducing the function of the inner ear. Okay. If that doesn't help? If that doesn't help, there's uh, several different operations that are available um, with varied success. Uh, the one that has the least success is the one that actually tried to get at the problem uh, directly, and that's what we call the endolymphatic sac decompression or shunt procedure. So the endolymphatic system um, is uh, a system that's going, again, between the fluid spaces of the brain and the inner ear. And there's a part of the inner ear called the endolymphatic duct and sac that is allowing fluid to go between those two fluid spaces. And so the shunt was designed to try to reduce the fluid pressure within the endolymphatic space. And it has anywhere, depending on what series you read, success rate of between uh, 50 and 70%, which is not great by surgical standards. So, but it's also a, a fairly non-invasive procedure. You're not going to hurt someone's hearing usually by doing this kind of procedure. It's a procedure that you can do in, a, in about an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, again, it's how effective is it going to be? What's the more successful? The more successful procedures are where you're actually a little bit more destructive to the ear. Uh, the... Uh, we have the capability of actually going in between the brain and the inner ear and just cutting the vestibular nerve, the balance nerve, leaving the cochlear nerve for hearing alone. And that operation is actually uh, quite successful, uh, probably between 95 and 98%, but it's also quite invasive uh, and, and carries the risk of us being next to the brain as we're doing this surgery. Well, and what happens when you cut the balance nerve? Well, the brain is quite good at switching over to the normal side for balance function. So those individuals actually will get back probably 98 to 99% of their balance function. And as long as that nerve is not sending bad signals from the ear that's dysfunctioning, then they do quite well. The only individuals that I worry about with that type of thing are as we get older, and I'm, I'm, I'm lumping myself into this, so above the age of about 65, now we're not going to compensate as well because uh, the plasticity of our brain isn't as good at switching over to the normal side. There's, there's, there's one, one last one, okay. okay, and that's a labyrinthectomy. And a labyrinthectomy is where you actually surgically go in and remove the inner ear. Huh. That's a fairly... I don't want to say simple operation, but a straightforward operation. It's no longer involving the brain. And you're removing both, you're removing the balance canals is essentially what you're doing. But it, it does the same thing as cutting the vestibular nerve. It makes the brain switch over to the good side and it gets rid of the bad signals coming from the dysfunctioning ear. Interesting. 
Well, thank you so much. My guest has been Upstate Otolaryngologist Dr. Charles Woods. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.